We are in our series on 1 Corinthians, and we are in this portion of 1 Corinthians having to do with human sexuality. So here is your disclaimer. This sermon is rated PG-13, not because there's anything that we're trying to do to spice up this material, but because that's what the text is like. And our deal at New Hope is that we preach the text, and uh, if God gives us something that has this stuff in it, we're not going to turn away. And the other reason that we're doing this is, again, not just because it's here. We could, you know, give it a glancing look and kind of run over it as quick as we could, maybe on a week where we're having communion and then the sermon has to be shorter. Um, we're living in a time where this issue of uh, how Christians ought to think about human sexuality, specifically the question of what role uh, homosexual behavior has in, in a Christian ethic of sexuality. This is an incredibly important issue right now. This is a terribly controversial issue right now. The ways that people are dealing with this have a lot to do with many of the divisions that we find in the church today. And it's been our conviction that we are at a time where what we are called to do is to understand as well as we can as charitably as we can, as generously as we can, as appreciatively as we can, the different ways that our brothers and sisters who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ understand this issue and understand some of the verses involved in constructing an ethic of sexuality that is consistent with what God would have for us. We're called to honor God with our bodies. And so the question is, how do you do that? Now, as we talked about, especially last week, there is a traditional understanding of human sexuality that is basically held firm throughout 2,000 years of the church's history, and even today is adhered to by the majority of Christians around the world, which is that God has in fact made us as sexual beings, that God has given us the desires that we have for a reason, and that those desires are to be met in the context of a heterosexual marriage. That marriage is not to be entered into lightly or unadvisedly, and that except in very, very few cases, it is not to be abandoned. But that we are called to live out our lives as sexual beings, uh, as married people, most of us, but some people are called instead to a lifestyle of celibacy to being single, and to not expressing uh, in any physical way the sexual desires they may have. So, uh, the idea is if you're married, you ought to live like you're married, and if you're not married, you ought to live like you're not married. And those who are married would be married man and woman. Well, a growing number of scholars and ethicists and leaders including among evangelicals, that is the tribe that New Hope is part of, people who hold a high view of Scripture, who believe that God's Word is inspired, that it is authoritative, that it is trustworthy, that it is reliable, and that it is what we are supposed to be referring to as we seek to understand these things, uh, have developed an understanding of this question that offers a variation. Namely, rather than saying that sex is a good and holy thing within a heterosexual marriage, 
they would say that should be adjusted to say that sex is a good and a holy thing within any marriage, including a homosexual marriage. So they would say that they're singing the same song, just transposed into a different key. And the reason, I think, many of the reasons why this position has become, I think, as, I don't want to say popular, because it's really not about popular. I think there are people who have come to this point of view based uh, on sincere study and on engagement with the, the reality of the world that we live in, uh, is that it, it retains so many of the good things about the traditional view of human sexuality in terms of our understanding that God has given us sexuality like so many other gifts as things to be enjoyed in the proper way, something, as things to be enjoyed within the bounds that he has given us. The, the, the things that he has given us are good if they're enjoyed and if they're celebrated and experienced in the ways that he has called us to enjoy and celebrate and experience those. If we do that in an inordinate way, if we do that outside of the ways that God has ordered these things, uh, then we are sinning. Then we are not living up to what's God's best for us. But if we are able to, accept, uh, to exercise the, uh, the use of these good things within the context of what God has given us, then we can live in a way that honors God, in a way that uh, enables us to, to grow in our union with Him to further mortify sin. And that is one of the big reasons why, if, as we'll see when we get to chapter 7, Paul recommends marriage. I mean, his preference, as we'll see, is that people be single like he is, but he says, you know, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. That is not a comment on what married life is like. That is to say that if there are people who, who need, who, who cannot see themselves living uh, without the opportunity to gratify their sexual desires and needs, then they should go ahead and get married because that's how God set it up so that you can have those desires gratified. And so people who hold this view that I'm talking about today would say that makes perfect sense and why shouldn't it be true of our gay brothers and sisters as well? Because there are people, and it's you know, maybe 3-4% of the population, but there's a significant number of people who do not experience sexual desire for people of the same gender. They exclusively experience same-sex attraction. And so what you're telling those people, according to the traditional view, is that you do not have an opportunity to gratify your sexual desires. You do not have an opportunity to live sexually in a way that honors God. Uh, you have to be celibate. And they think that is, uh, they would say that that is, that is cruel. They would say that it proves to be unworkable. And they would say that instead what we should do is broaden or in a sense adjust our understanding of marriage to include people who are of the same gender. Now, the main problem with this is that it runs up pretty quickly against some passages in Scripture which seem to be pretty clear. So, we read in Leviticus a whole lot of things. Uh, one of them is in chapters 18 and 20 of Leviticus. We are told that uh, the, 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 the law is do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman that is detestable and again in chapter 20 if a man 
uh, lies with a man as one lies with a woman. Both of them has done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, there are a number of things, of course, in Leviticus that are described as detestable, some of them being uh, things like incest. Uh, in fact, Leviticus is pretty exhaustive. It, it really kind of goes through all the possible ways you could commit incest and specifically says you can't do those. Um, bestiality is described as detestable. Wearing a Steelers jersey, also detestable. Uh, through all, all of history, uh, today, I will note, uh, being a Red Sox fan, today only is not detestable. We can root for the Red Sox as hard as we want today because we need the Jays to lose. But, but the, the, and, you know, and, and there's plenty of stuff in Leviticus that's described as uh, abominable is another word uh, uh, that, that, you know, that, that it has to do with things like ritual purity. Uh, that we wouldn't follow uh, or worry about. The idea of, of wearing a cotton poly blend, for example, probably had something to do with idolatrous practices in the nations around, and uh, that's, uh, that's something that, that we, don't, we don't worry about. But, but basically, the, the ethic of sexuality given in the Old Testament is that sexuality is to be expressed inside heterosexual marriage and not outside of that and not with your auntie. Um, so when we get to the New Testament... Uh, we see that there are some, um, some principles in Old Testament law that Jesus intensifies and develops. So, for example, he says, um, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. He says, but I, I tell you, if you even hate your brother, then you've committed murder in your heart. So he gets to the real heart of the commandment, but he's not, uh, not overriding it. He's simply giving it a greater definition. <laughs> with regard to uh, human sexuality, as, we, as we've seen, we don't have an episode of Jesus getting up and saying, so you asked what I think about gay marriage. Um, what we do have is him being asked about marriage and divorce, and we do see that Jesus says that uh, you know this idea of marriage is something that God thought up from the beginning, uh, and it involves uh, men and women getting together, and that uh, the, when what God has put together, the, the human being should not put asunder. Uh, so there's no sense from Jesus' teaching that he's radically altering uh, this understanding of, of sexuality with respect to different genders. And then when we get to Paul, and, and you may have been wondering why for seven weeks our text is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and we haven't talked about 6, 9 through 11 yet. Today we're going to talk about it. Uh, Paul says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul uses a word in there that he also uses in a similar passage in First Timothy when he he says, we, we know that, that Torah is good if one uses it properly. We also know that Torah is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, adulterers, and perverts, slave traders, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Uh, the two words... In in uh, in question here in First Corinthians, 
uh, really are in question. There's one word that really is not in question. The, the most common word for sexual immorality in, in, in the New Testament is porneia. Porneia, um, translated in older translations, is fornication, from which derives the familiar uh, impolite word. Porneia is a broad term that refers to sexual immorality in general. And uh, most people would have an idea when you talked about porneia about what kinds of things that would involve. Um, But Paul specifically talks about malakoi and arsenikoitai. Malakoi literally means soft. So it could be that Paul is condemning fat people, but I think it more likely in this context that what Paul is talking about is people who are acting in an effeminate way, people who are overly luxurious. And partnered with the word arsenikoitai, what this has been understood to refer to is uh, the passive and active partners in a male homosexual encounter. Arsenikoitai is a compound word. Arsenikoitai uh, comes from uh, the Greek words arsen and uh, koitain. Uh, arsen means male, and uh, koitain is, is to lie. So an arsenikoitas is somebody who lies with a male, right? Um, and much in the sense that in the Old Testament when someone says, uh, you know, uh, Adam knew Eve, when we read Adam knew Eve, knew means he had sexual relations with, to lie with is to have sexual relations with. So an arsenikoitas is somebody who has sexual relations, a man who has sexual relations with another man. Um, the challenge with this uh, is that, for one thing, um, the first time in history, or at least the first time in, in uh, books that we have, uh, that the Greek word arsenikoitai shows up is right here in 1 Corinthians 6. Now, in my house, we have the experience of children doing homework. And oftentimes, when children are doing homework, children will say things like, what does this word mean? Right? Or they'll also try to get me to do arithmetic. Right? And my answer is always, well, I bet you can figure that out. Um, uh, or that's why God made the dictionary. Or go ahead and Google it. Um, that, partly that's because, you know, that's what I was told to do when I was a kid, and I was being lazy and asking my kid, my parents, to define some word for me. But the other reason is it's a good exercise to go and you know learn to look stuff up. If you have a question, as Big Bird says, asking questions is a good way of finding out things. But just sort of throwing a question out into the ether doesn't get you anywhere. You need to find an answer if you can. Well. The thing is, dictionaries did not drop out of the sky. This is a, a little pet peeve I have, by the way, with some Bible study methods and techniques. And, and somebody can go ahead and, if you want to, like, close some of the windows. I know it, it was, was warm. Now it's overly cold. So if somebody wants to close windows, you can. I'm not offended. Um, so oftentimes people will say, well, the first thing you have to do when you're doing a Bible study is you go to the dictionary and look up the, word of, uh, the, the definition of all the, the words in the passage. Well, like, the Bible's inspired, but it's translated into English, but the dictionary you're using is not necessarily inspired. And dictionaries are produced how? By scholars reading the literature that's available to come to the understanding of what a word means. That can change over time. 
There can also be different opinions about what that means. So you, you, you can't just treat Webster's or the Oxford English Dictionary, for that matter, as holy writ, right? And especially in this case, if you're trying to understand the meaning of a word that has not shown up at all before Paul writes it down, as far as we know, and, and Paul did coin some terms, so he, called neologism. So, so there are places where Paul basically said, hey, I need a word, I'm going to make it up. And this may be one of those spots. The other issue is that uh, where, where the word, uh, that there's some diversity in the way the word gets used later on. Same with, with malakoi. That can be seen as, as referring to male prostitutes, uh, people who would sell their bodies to be used uh, as the passive partners in a homosexual encounter. But again, we can't be 100% sure. It's likely, I think, that when Paul, if he did coin this term arsenikoitai, he would have had in his mind the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation that was commonly used in his time, uh, the way that the Septuagint renders these passages in Leviticus, it uses the words arson and koitas. In fact, uh, in, fact in, in the way that that uh, the Septuagint renders chapter 20, verse 13 of Leviticus, the second reading, uh, you have arsenos and koitain right next to each other. So the idea that, that Paul just sort of accidentally did that without having this in, in his head, I think is unlikely. Of course, Paul would have had Torah memorized in the Hebrew, but he would have been well familiar with the, the Septuagint, the common Greek translation that was, uh, it was available at the time. So it's it's I think likely that Paul would have understood or when he wrote Arsenikoitai, he was referring to men who lie with men. And so really what, what we're having to ask is what, what did Paul think he was talking about when he said these things? Another passage, just to throw it in the mix, is what we find in the end of chapter 1 of Romans where Paul says, speaking of these wicked, unrighteous Gentiles, pagans therefore god gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another they exchanged the truth of god for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised amen because of this god gave them over to shameful lusts even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones in the same way men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in their flesh the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, grief, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, Yankee fans, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They, they make up new ways of doing evil. The, the ones that are available aren't enough. They have to make up new ones. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And even though they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do them, but they cheer on the people who do them as well. Now, as you'll remember from our study of Romans, in terms of Paul's rhetorical strategy here, this passage at the end of Romans 1 is a what? It's a setup. 
Because the very next thing he says in chapter 2 of Romans in verse 1 is, so you have no excuse when you pass judgment on someone else because you do the same things. Paul's basically setting them up to want to point a finger at somebody else. And he says, you may notice as you're pointing that finger that three fingers are pointing right back at you. Paul's bigger point uh, here is his effort is to make sure everybody is aware that everybody sins and falls short of the glory of God. So you can go ahead and, and condemn other people all you want, but the fact is you're guilty too. We're all in the same boat. None of us can stand before God and be righteous on our own, Paul says. But just because something's a setup doesn't mean it's not true. And it doesn't mean that God that Paul didn't look at the practices of these Gentiles with disdain, with horror, with a sense that they what they're doing is really, really nasty and they should not be doing it. That's reflected in the language that he uses. That's reflected in the fact that Jewish culture in, in the first century saw itself as separate from pagan culture on account of uh, certain... Uh, cultural distinctives, one of which was, uh, was a, a very conservative ethic of sexuality. And so what some people would say is, here's the deal. Paul grew up, he was a rabbinic student, student of the Rabbi Gamliel. He, he would have grown up learning Torah. He would have been studying. He would have been hanging out in a culture where there would have been no room for uh, any approval of any homosexual activity. And Paul was circulating in the Roman Empire of the first century, and and the kind of homosexual activity that he would have been aware of would be the kind that involved things like sex for money, which Paul condemns. He certainly is not in favor of prostitution. Would be involved in uh, connection with idolatry. So you had in places including Corinth, temple prostitution, where people as part of uh, participating in religious festivals would actually buy the services of prostitutes in the temple and somehow this sexual activity was connected to this idolatrous worship, which Paul, of course, would not have been down with. Where homosexual behavior would have been thought of in Paul's mind as something that necessarily involved exploitation. So, for example, if you were a, uh, a slave owner, if you had a, had a household and you had slaves you had every right in the world to do with your slaves as you saw fit. And it was simply expected that a person would make use of his slaves for his own sexual pleasure. Male, female, whatever the person was interested in. And in fact, Paul, it's likely, would have seen uh, the practice of of homosexual activity as probably connected to a couple of different uh, phenomena. One could be, and this really would relate more to its Old, Old Testament context, that it would be seen as an expression of dominance, an expression of domination. So if a person is the active partner in, in a homosexual coupling, that person is, is exercising dominance and demonstrating superiority over the person who is the recipient. The other way, Paul would see it, is people who are just living such crazy, indulgent lifestyles that they haven't found it interesting to do the things that they ought to do, and so they've had to go on to more unusual practices in order to get the same charge. So you'd find people who 
even though they are primarily attracted to people of the opposite sex, would go ahead and have sex with, with people of the same sex because it would be new and exciting and interesting and something that they could indulge in. So what people uh, who hold this view would say is that Paul had no conception, no conception whatsoever. It would not have entered Paul's mind that you might have two people of the same sex who would meet one another, who would date one another. I mean, dating was a little unusual for Paul anyway. Most marriages would have been arranged. But, but, but that, they would, that they would meet one another, that they would date one another, that they would would live uh, in a manner that honored God, i.e. that they would live chastely until they got married and then would spend the rest of their lives in, in a committed partnership in which they would be able to have sexual relations with one another. The idea that there would be what we would today call gay marriage, these people say, is something that Paul would never have actually thought of. It would never have occurred to him. He wouldn't have seen it. He would not have seen two mature, mutually consenting adults of the same sex choosing to be bound to one another for life. And so because of that, they would say, Paul would recognize this variation on his main theme, would recognize this transposition into a different key as something that makes perfect sense and is consistent with the kinds of things that he has said about human sexuality more broadly. So, the strengths and weaknesses of this view. First, the strength, the main strength, is that it does align well, for the most part, with the traditional sexual ethic. It says if you're going to look at two end zones, one of which involves celibacy and one of which involves committed fidelity in marriage, then you are making sure that the the marriage end zone has room in it for people who are only attracted to people of the same gender. But those people have the same benefits and opportunities that heterosexual people have. That only seems fair. It also seems to be a way to ensure that they are able to honor God with their bodies if this is understood to be honorable. It permits a, uh, it allows you to keep a high view of Scripture. If you say, well, I'm not going against anything Paul said or, or, or what the Old Testament said, I'm, I'm simply uh, dealing with a situation that was not in view when those authors wrote what they wrote. And it's the least likely, I think, to undermine traditional societal structures that enable people or can help people to live infidelity with one another if you're simply saying okay then the teaching would be that gay people if they want to be married should be married and get married and stay married and so you can make adjustments to the marriage license so you don't have you know husband and wife you can have you know spouse one and spouse two but you can deal with all the other things like adoption and divorce and and all the stuff that comes with marriage law and the principles of that, you'd simply apply them to gay couples. But there are significant weaknesses to this view as well. The first and, and most important one is that it might not just be a variation. 
it might not just be a transposition. Some folks would say that rather than being simply uh, the modification of a teaching to permit a certain phenomenon that wasn't known to the author, biblical authors, they would say, no, this actually flies in the face. This idea flies in the face of what we find in Genesis and what Jesus affirmed, that God created us male and female, and God created us to be complementary. The idea of binary gender complementarity, these folks would say, is baked into the way that Scripture defines us as human beings. And so if you're going to say that this is a variation on that theme, they would say you're misrepresenting the, the, the case. This is actually something that's completely in opposition. The second problem with this, and it's, it's sort of a specific case, but it, I, I think it can't be overlooked, is that Paul does say in Romans 1, when he speaks of these various wicked practices, he mentions women exchanging natural relations for unnatural relations. And everything we know about the way in which female same-sex relations would have been experienced, and there isn't a whole lot of literature on it, uh, but it, what we know about it is it basically uh, indicates that it was not uh, that it was it was basically free of the kinds of ideas related to domination and exploitation that featured so prominently in male same-sex relationships, and so the idea of women being in relationship with one another in a sense that was stable, mutually respectful, loving, and so forth is. It's hard to say that Paul had no idea that that could have been going on because he does mention it and he does not mention it positively. And the final weakness of this, and this is a weakness that it shares, frankly, I think with the, with the uh, uh, egalitarian interpretation of gender roles. And you have evangelicals who would say, I take a very high view of Scripture. I think Scripture is authoritative and it's correct. And I think that even though it appears on first glance that when Paul says that women should not teach in church but should be silent, that actually Paul would permit women to be ordained and to lead churches. Uh, you just need to read it properly and understand it in context. In many ways, it's a similar, a similar issue for understanding these texts in this way on the question of same-sex behavior. You really do have to pull it to a draw to an inside straight or shoot the moon in terms of nailing all of the questions of history and context that enable you to say these things that folks would say. And some people have uh, greater or lesser degrees of confidence in, uh, in their, uh, the correctness of their interpretation. And it always should be borne in mind that one of the main reasons people come to this point of view, and, and the folks who have written about this, most of them are very, very... Uh, straightforward in saying this is that they want to believe that. That they think that the traditional ethic of human sexuality that, that the church has basically taught for 2,000 years that most Christians today believe, that they think that that is missing out on a key piece when it comes to people who are attracted to people of the same gender and want to be in committed, loving, lifelong relationships with them. They would say we experience people in our midst who are, are not acting in ways that seem to be perverted. They don't desire to have uh, these, these uh, 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 excessive, lustful activities. They're not committing idolatry. 
They're not uh, exploiting one another. There's no pederasty going on. What we're talking about is two mature individuals who are adults and who want to be together. And that really ought to be possible. There ought to be some way we can read this text that makes that possible. I think we always have to be suspicious when we read Scripture if we come to a conclusion that we like. The fact is, if there are not things in Scripture that bother you, you're not paying close enough attention. Because all of us, as Paul says, sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are still being formed into Christ's image. All of us desire things that are at odds with God's best for us. And so if when reading about something that we find difficult, we're able to make some sort of an interpretation that suddenly resolves all the difficulties that makes it easy for us to read, I think we have to be suspicious of ourselves. Because I know there are a lot of things I want to find in Scripture that if I work hard enough, I can find there. But I'm not supposed to find them because they're not there. Which leads to this. That issue, of course, is less important If you're not asking the question of what Paul thought when he was writing this letter somewhere in the 50s, in the common era, but what if you were able to resurrect Paul and have him know all the things that we know today and experience the things we have experienced, what would Paul think now? That is the question we will address next week. Let us pray. Lord God, in this and in all things, we look to your word for guidance, trusting that you have revealed to us the things that we need to know, and trusting that you have left unclear many things that you do not want us to have too much confidence in. I pray that we would always be people who trust you more than we trust ourselves, that our desire would be to honor you with everything we do, with our bodies and with our interpretation of Holy Scripture. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.